So this week we're, uh, we're starting a new series, and, um, and the series title is called Real Life. Now this is more than just a regular uh, sermon series. This, this series actually is as working through our new vision. Our vision as a church is to see lives transformed by Jesus Christ in the Okanagan Valley. Lives transformed. We want to see people come to know Jesus and we want to see those who already know Jesus continually being transformed. And so this series, Real Life, each of the letters that you can see on the screen here represent a different aspect of what we believe is real life as a human being. So the first one that we're going to start cracking into today is redemption, the redeemed life. And then we have the empowered life, we have the active life, and we have the listening life. And if you look on each of the, uh, on each of the icons there, there's some representation of what we're trying to communicate and what we believe we're about. And today, we're going to start talking about this life turned around, this redeemed life. The redeemed life might be something that sounds quite odd to you because it's not a word that we use very often. But this series, actually, is a great day to come because we're going to go on a journey over the next 10 weeks. And we're going to go on a journey from what it is right from the beginning, what it was and what it is that God planned for us as human beings. So if you don't know Jesus or you're on a bit of a journey and you're trying to figure out what it is that you do believe, then today is a good day to come. Today, Every week is a good week to come, but this is a good start. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to bring your Bibles. We will show scriptures on the screen, but there's nothing quite like opening up your Bible and scribbling on it, not randomly. Highlight it, write it, but also I want you to start bringing your journals or your notepads. To help you, we have produced uh, some study notes. Now, you can get these at the Connect desk, and each week there are questions that will help you go deeper into what it is that we're speaking on each week. Community group leaders, you need one of these. They're available at the Connection Desk. If you want to go and get one right now, please do, because you can make some notes as we go by, and then you can talk about what we're preaching in your community group. They're also going to be available online. And so please grab those. It's really important. We want to do everything we can to help you, but it's important that you bring your Bibles, bring your notepads, bring your Connect. We, I, this stuff is as about as important it gets as a Christian. Everything else is upon this foundation, real life. Okay, so I'm excited to get started, and we're going to start by looking at one verse in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Romans 8 and verse 1, and it says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to look at some words in particular, no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation. Actually, in the original, it says this, there is now, so there is therefore No condemnation. Not the word now. It's not there. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's an interesting word to use, this word condemnation, for those who are in Christ Jesus, because it suggests that there are those who are condemned. That this scripture, right from the start of this amazing passage in Romans 8, he's saying, look, there is a group of people, those who know Jesus Christ, who can stand differently. There is no condemnation. They are changed. Changed from what? That's what we're going to talk about today. What is it that we're changed from? See, the gospel, as Christians, we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The original word for the gospel literally means 
good news. In order for something to be good news, it has to be relief from something that is bad. Does that make sense? Otherwise, it's just news. But this is good news. Why is it good news? Well, it's, it's, how, it's, it's giving us relief. It's giving us a message of, of something that is bad. We're redeemed from something that is bad. This idea of no condemnation is rooted in there is therefore now no condemnation because the bad news is condemnation. The bad news is the way uh, life could be without knowing Jesus Christ. So in order for us to fully understand what it is that we are not condemned from or that we are saved from, we need to go right from to the very, very beginning. And we're going to turn to Genesis 1 and verse 31. Genesis 1, see this is why me having a stick mic doesn't work. Because I end up throwing water all over myself. Which I know is entertaining for everybody, but... (laughs) For us to really understand the good news, we need to know what the bad news is. So let's start right from the beginning. So today, I've got to be honest with you, this this is pretty intense stuff. Okay, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's bad news. But hold on, stay with me, because this is our foundation, but it just gets better and better week in, week in, week out. So if you only come today and don't come to the rest of the series, then you go, wow, I'm, uh, that's really depressing. And, but this is good news. Just, just trust me, it's good news. But we have to start with the bad news. So in the beginning... We read some scripture in verse 31. It says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. We know that it's bad news. We know that there's something wrong with our world because we've been created for something better. Our world is broken. Amen? Can everybody agree? Like I just, I I looked at BBC News this morning, saw there's a bomb gone off in New York. Our world is broken. You speak to a police officer, you'll find out that our world is broken. If you speak to a paramedic, people who are on the front line of people's lives that are actually broken and hurting, they will say, yeah, there's something wrong with the world. You speak to a social worker. You speak to a pastor. Pastors are often the first people that are called into situations where people are filled with sorrow and brokenness. There's something wrong with our world. How do we know there's something wrong with our world? Because we've been created for something better. Genesis 1, 31, God saw that he, what he had made, and it was very good. For God to underline something and say, this is very good, it has to be very good, and that resonates inside every human being. We know there's something better. We know that this is broken because we have a glimpse inside our hearts of something better, something more worthwhile, something more magnificent, something more beautiful. It resonates inside of us, so we know, therefore, that it's broken because you only know something is ugly if you can compare it to something that is beautiful. Let me show you a little image that kind of represents what God did right at the beginning. A very simple image. And you might want to actually draw this in your notepad. We got that image. This is God created the world. God is king of the world. And it's a good world. The reason I'm saying to draw these is because visually it's important sometimes. Those of you who doodles, I, I, I doodle. This will help you share the gospel, Christians, with people who don't know Jesus. So draw that. I'll give you a minute. No, I'm joking, I won't. Pretty simple. God is king of the earth and the earth is good. 
but something broke. We know there is a better way. We have an intuition that says there's a better way. I mean, you only have to kind of be around people who are experiencing death. Whether it's a small child who passes away, or whether it's a holding the hand of a 90-year-old passing away. There's something about death that we know that this is not the way it's meant to be. That there's meant to be something better, something more long-lasting, something that actually is, is more than this. And it's because God created the world to be good, something to be different. We have a tuition, intuition that says, yeah, no, I, I know this is not right. Switch on the TV. We're surrounded by it. So where does this intuition come from? Well, for us to answer that question, we have to ask the question, why did God create us? Why did God create us? Now, let me just dispel some absolute, total nonsense just to start with, okay? God, please, you might want to write this down. God did not create mankind because he was lonely, He did not create, it does not say in the beginning, God was bored and alone. Let's make mankind. He didn't do that. The scripture doesn't say that. You've got to remember that if we proclaim that God is perfect, he cannot be alone. He is perfectly happy, perfectly content. So God did not create mankind out of some idea that he wanted friends. Now, that might sound strange to you, but those of you who've been around church long enough, you'll have heard preaching like that, that somehow God created us because he just loved us so much and he wanted more friends. That's not Bible. It's it's just not in the Bible. Here's why God created us, and, and the scripture resonates with this mega theme. It's this, that it's an overflow of his love and majesty. You are the result. You are the result of his majesty and an overflow of love. This might be a a difficult concept for you to understand. So let let me describe it this way. In Ephesians 2 and verse 10, it says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. So if we are created, mankind was created as an overflow of his love and majesty, and this scripture here says we are his workmanship, That word literally means poem. We are God's poem. Now, I'm not talking about the poem that you and I used to hack out when we were in grade nine. Oh, I hated poetry. I really did. It was awful. And I'm pretty sure that no matter how bad I thought it was, I'm fairly sure that my poetry was way worse. I'm talking about something magnificent and glorious. Think think some of those amazing poems like Paradise Lost or The Odyssey or Beowulf, some magnificent, glorious, incredible, artistic pieces of art. That's you and me. Why did God create us? Because like any good artist, and we're talking about the divine artist, it was an overflow of its artistry, his love. This is why I love art, because art, God is all about art. That's why we celebrate art in our foyer, and we have the South Art Project. God is the divine artist, and you are his magnificent masterpiece. And as with every good artist, he puts it on display. It's an overflow. And in the same way that you might look at a piece of art and kind of go, yeah, I I don't get it. <laughs> That's how I feel sometimes with mankind. I like, 
I don't, yeah, I don't understand what God was trying to do there. You know, when you look at a piece of art, not our artist, obviously, but when you look at a piece of art and go, yeah, I'm, I'm not seeing it. It's beautiful, but I don't see the story. There's a mystery to it. But it's an overflow of his love. It's an overflow of his artistic expression. Look at Psalm 104. It says, Oh Lord, how manifest, uh, manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And then the psalmist carries on. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. And then look to see, look to see what the next part is. Here may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Why did God create mankind? Why is it that it is good? Why is it that we know there's something better? Is the great artist, God, created us out of an overflow of his love and his majesty so that he could rejoice in it. The Bible actually says that he sings songs over you and me if you're in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know what song God is singing over me. As I preached a few weeks ago, I'm fairly sure it's not Jesus Take the Wheel. That's an old sermon. We won't go there. I offended so many people by saying I didn't like country and western music. I stand by it, though. I'm brave. I don't know what the song is that God sings over me, but listen, he rejoices. He rejoices because you are an overflow of his love and majesty. Isn't that more magnificent and glorious for God than saying that he was lonely and needed more friends? That's why we have this inbuilt intuition that there is a better way. We are very good, the scripture says, but we're broken. We're very good, but we're broken. Now, you need to understand that as unusual as it may be, some of this that you've maybe heard for the first time, our culture communicates something very, very different. Our culture does not uh, communicate you are very good. Our culture communicates, actually, you're just a bunch of random chemicals thrown together, the strong killing off the weak, that actually you're so much of an accident that if... If you actually, life begins in a womb, we'll just get rid of it. That the Imago Dei, the image of God, is not, hasn't got any dignity in our world. Whereas if you go right from the beginning and you see God's original intention of us being an overflow of his love and majesty, that he created us as an expression, an image of himself, then the dignity of humankind actually rises up, which is why Christians, by the way, please listen, Christians are the ones that first initiated there being no slavery. Christians were the ones that brought in social work for the first time. Christians were the ones that started some kind of health care. Christians are the ones that fight for the unborn. Because we believe in Imago Dei, because we've been created as an overflow of his love and majesty. See, as Christians, we know that the world is broken because we've tasted something better. Whereas our culture has not tasted that and scrambles for answers and, and scrambles around and, and actually in their journey to, to hopelessness in many ways, that they're displaying that they're just so ingrained in the bad news. That's the only way they can live. Let's just get rid of life. Choice is higher than life. So we know, we know there's something better. But it's not God that is broken. It's not humans in terms of how God created them that is, that is wrong. The manufacturer isn't wrong. It's that we broke that sovereign plan. 
we broke it. Um, we've been doing some renovations at home over the summer, and uh, and you know I know I make fun of myself quite a lot, and uh, in terms of do it yourself and that kind of thing. But I'm I'm fairly handy with you know around the house, and there's a couple of you who've been around helping, and hopefully you've been seeing. No, he's not a complete idiot. It's true he he can handle a hammer and a saw and various other things. But what I'm not very good at is electricity. And and, I, and I'll stand here and confess that I have been electrocuted four times. Twice in Britain, which is way worse than being electrocuted in North America. Because in Britain, it's 240 volts plus whatever ampage. And that's where it just gets all nonsense to me and I don't really understand it. It hurts. And, and that happened twice. The worst one was when I decided to stick a screwdriver down the back of an old TV. Because there's a sucker on the back of old TVs. Those of you who know what I'm talking about, engineers, put your hands up. There's a sucker on the back of TVs, the capacitor. And it holds a tremendous amount of voltage to kickstart the TV. Have I got nods? Is anybody with me? So I decided, you know what? Let's see if I can get that thing off. Let's see if I can get that sucker off with a screwdriver. And I did it right in front of my wife. Because I had bits of computer and monitors all over our front room. Because that's what you do when you're bored and you don't have any kids and you're just married. You're right. But I decided I would prise this off with a screwdriver. stuck my screwdriver in the back of it. And I got an incredible incredible electric shock because I didn't realize that a capacitor by nature holds a lot of electricity. And I electrocuted myself and my first response was to, for some reason, was I had one of those very fashionable in the early 90s kind of metal bracelet watches, you know, the ones that were expandable. So my response was to jump back, scream and take my watch off and throw it across the room. I still don't know why I did that. And obviously, my, my new wife was deeply concerned, laughing in the corner, as, as always, because it's just a comedy show, apparently, being married to me. But uh, this summer, the reason I'm telling you all that is this summer, I electrocuted myself again. And the reason was, is I was redoing some of the wiring in our, in our kitchen, and, and uh, the labels on our, on our circuit breaker board were wrong. Because when I flicked off all the switches that said plugs and sockets and lights and whatever else, I switched them all off. There was, there was one there that said uh, garburator. We don't have a garburator. So why would I switch that off? So I didn't switch it off. Just in the same way I wouldn't switch off irrigation. Because I'm not touching the irrigation. And so I go upstairs and, 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 I, and I test the top part of the outlet. And they had no electricity. That's all good. But the garburator apparently was attached to the bottom part of the outlet. So I stick my screwdriver in there and get the shock. Now, it's no big deal. Those of you who are like, oh, it happens to me all the time. It's still a bit of a shock to a pastor. It's not something you're used to. The label was wrong. There's nothing wrong with the electricity. I proved that by sticking my screwdriver in there. It works. What was broken, what was mislabeled, was the, the breaker board. And now I know you're going, yeah, whatever, blame whatever you want. You're still the idiot that put the screwdriver in the back. I accept that. But there's nothing wrong with the electricity. We can't blame the electricity for experiencing pain when I'm the one wielding the screwdriver. We can't blame God. And by the way, we do for our broken world. There's nothing wrong with the world in the way that God created it, but our world has been broken. The problem is, is what we as humans have decided to do with the freedom that God sovereignly gave to us right at the beginning. So a question that often comes up is, well, why did God put the tree in the middle of the garden? Why would he do that? 
Why, why didn't you just, no tree, we'll just keep perfection, thank you very much. Why did he put the tree in the middle of the garden? Anybody? No, we'll come to that next week. But the reason, I, I, the scripture is actually really quiet as to why, so you kind of have to do some um, hypothesizing around it. So here's one of the things that I've read, and it seems to resonate well with me, is there's a great deal of joy in obedience. There's joy and beauty to be found in being obedient to God. It's an expression of our love. It's not, please hear this, please hear this. It is not, God did not put that tree in the garden because free will was what was of ultimate value to him. That you can't truly love God unless you choose to love him. There's a couple of problems with that. First of all, it's not in the Bible. So if you're going to quote the Bible, it's not there. It really isn't. It's just not there. It makes sense to us, but the reality is, is that if you dig a little bit deeper into that idea, then it actually falls apart pretty quickly. So why did God put the tree into the garden? Well, many writers would say because there's great joy in obedience, and we'll come to free will and everything next week. But there's there's great joy in obedience. But he put that tree in the garden, and you know the story. As Adam and Eve took of the fruit, they disobeyed God, and then the world was flooded with sin. What effectively happened, you remember that first image, is that we as humans made ourselves king. We made ourselves king. They, we rejected, is there the next image, or is that the same one? Okay, it should be, there we go. We made ourselves king. We rejected God, made ourselves king. And in Genesis 3, in verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden because sin and shame flooded the world. And if you want to see proof of that, switch the TV on. Sin and shame flooded the world and affected everything. It affects our bodies. It affects our emotions. It affects our relationships. And if you read Romans, it actually says it affects our world. The very creation itself is groaning as a result of the sin that flooded the world. We are fallen in our minds. We are fallen in our hearts. We are fallen in our souls. And now this is where people get very indignant. Those who are outside of the church and even those Christians inside, we find it hard to understand and believe that deep inside of us, we have a heart issue. We don't have a behavior issue. We have a heart issue. And it came as a result of disobedience right at the beginning of creation. So those of us who kind of go, actually, no, I don't believe in the in creation. I don't believe in the fall. I don't believe in all that. Then what is the root of the decay that we see in our world? Because it's not getting any better. We can't recover or redeem ourselves with God. Our relationship with God was broken. Because God can have nothing to do with sin. He can have no connection. You see, before, before the fall, there was this beautiful resonance between God and man. That there was this God walking in the garden of the lives of, of Adam and Eve. There was this beauty and this connection, this one. But after the fall, it's broken. Our relationship with God changed from righteous to unrighteous. Friend to enemy. Guilt 
stained innocence. Guilt stained innocence and it affects every aspect of our lives. If you want proof of that, think about where your mind goes to so quickly and so easily. Think about when you are just you and you're not distracted with the noise of life and it's just you and your thoughts. Where does your mind naturally go? It does not naturally go towards God. We have to fight for that. We don't drift towards God. We drift towards decay. And if this is your first time to South, you're going to hear a lot about sin. You're going to hear a lot about wrath. You're going to hear a lot about punishment. Why? Because you're going to hear a huge amount about Jesus. You're going to hear about the cross. You're going to hear about the good news because we need good news because of the bad news. And here's what happens. If we truly understand how broken we really are, that when Sarah or Josh get up and lead worship, our hearts explode with joy because we know from what we have been saved from. If you diminish and make that small, if you just make it that God created us because he wanted more friends, that sin really isn't a problem, that, that really it's just about fellowship and community, if you make the gospel about that, then you are more likely to come, or more likely to avoid church because you don't want to come and celebrate. There's no, there's no desire to be in the house of God. You're not going to want to connect in community with other Christians. But if you actually make that sin as disgusting as it actually is and oh, the fact that you are saved from that, then what happens is your heart explodes with celebration. You become less judgmental because you look at other people in their sin and go, I was no better off. In fact, I was worse. So judgment decreases, celebration increases, and church gets wild. Because like then it just becomes like Sarah's job is really just to hold us back. Like, whoa, whoa, calm down. Can we just have a little less noise and clapping, please? That's Sarah's job. Because what she's doing is leading us in celebration of what has truly happened in our hearts. Some of the greatest and most encouraging writing I have ever read is writing that highlights that from which we are saved from as well as to. This is why we need to start here. Romans 8, verse 20 and 23. For the creation was subjected to futility. Creation. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free. You see, creation itself is in bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. How many of you have been in the room in the middle of childbirth? <laughs> Some of the guys are going, I don't know whether I want to admit, like, yeah, I was there, but my wife is going to give me a dead arm if you're not careful, Pastor Glenn. Because, like, we observe it. Sarah experienced it. But I don't remember it being a an easy occasion. There's groaning. There's pain. There's... There's discomfort. And that's what Paul is saying creation is. It's waiting for the birth of a new heaven and a new earth. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves are groaning, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption, redeemed life, the redemption of our bodies. So we know that there's something better. And it's this redemption of our bodies. This is redemption of the creation. It's this resolving, this resolution back to the way things should be. Reconciling, the Bible says, back to the original plan. Real life. We groan for it. Creation groans for it. Mankind groans for it. And we try and, break, try and fix our own brokenness. And it just doesn't work. Billions upon billions upon billions of dollars are spent every year on people trying to fix themselves, don't they? You name it. And all that we seem to be able to do is try and create improved versions of ourselves. But in 10 years' time, we have the same problems. You know, we might have a little bit more money, and we might have a better car, or we might have a nicer house, or we might be, you know, going off to Phoenix for the winter months or whatever, but it doesn't change who we are. And we run to different things to try and make ourselves feel better. We, we run to ourselves and try and improve ourselves health-wise or mentally or self-help. We try and improve ourselves and it doesn't work. So then what we do is we run to other people and we try and get them to improve. Maybe if I can just have the correct relationship. Maybe you will fill that void that I feel and it doesn't work. In fact, it's unfair because you're putting so much pressure on this other person that they will never be able to fulfill that which is truly broken, which is the heart. So then we, then we run to possessions. We run to those things in life in the hope that they will somehow bring improvement, redeem us, make us better, and they too fail us. And so then we run to religion, and, and then we say, okay, religion, we want you to fix us. But the reality is religion will not fix us. Religion in that essence of trying to serve something so that thing will actually improve us, that is not Christianity. In fact, the Bible's clear. There's nothing you can do to actually fix yourself, even if it is you putting your focus on a religion. Choose one. Any religion, any belief basis in the world, anything outside of Christianity is based on what you do in order to see improvement in your life. Whereas Christianity is all about what he did. He did. Not what you and I can do. And all we're trying to do, as the scripture says, is try to obtain freedom and redemption from our bodies. But the result is, just like Adam and Eve, is that we hide ourselves among the trees that we create for ourselves in the hope that we can find relief. And then we do what Adam and Eve do, is we have this beautiful cosmic buck passing. You know what I mean? Well, it's their fault. Um, if, if that would stop, then I would feel better. You know, or maybe, uh, maybe if my mum and dad were changed, then, then I would feel better. I'd, I'd improve. Maybe if my employer, oh my goodness, if my employer could be different, then my whole life would change. It would improve. If my employees would be different, then my life would change. It would improve. If my children could just stay in alignment with what I want them to say, then my life would improve, that I would be able to fix this, that I would redeem myself. 
if the minorities in society would stop, if, if the majorities, the big companies, big business, that's the issue in the world, we need to fix that and then all the world's problems would change. And then maybe if the government were different, maybe if the church was different, I'm going to find myself a different church to try and find improvement in my kids' lives so therefore it'll help me in my life. And then ultimately we blame God. We say, you know, if God hadn't let this happen, and we pollute life and then we blame God for the results. And it's just like sticking a screwdriver into an outlet. There's nothing wrong with the, elect- There's nothing wrong with the electricity. It's us that is the problem. Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And Isaiah 48 verse 8, Before birth you were called a rebel. I know I'm digging. I know I am. Just hold on. Friends, if you are an eighth generation Christian or an eighth generation atheist, it makes no difference. It's a heart issue and we need Jesus whether you're a singer in a worship team or if you're a singer in a strip joint, it makes no difference. Our issue is not our behavior. Our issue is our heart. If you're a pastor, if you're a criminal, if you're a business owner, if you live on the streets, whatever it might be, our issue is not our behavior. Our issue is our heart. We can't just stop being sinful. You can curb some of the behaviors, but the ultimate problem is a heart issue. And we know that to be the case because we sense it and we see it. Ephesians 2 verse 1, it says, dead in transgressions and sins. We are incapable of changing ourselves. We are incapable because we are dead. There's a separation between God and man. And then this next image sums it up so well, is we truly are dead. So here's the problem. That's where the world leaves you. Doesn't it? That's where our culture leaves you. We recognize we have a problem. We recognize that we have issues. We recognize that it's broken. Anybody in the world would agree with that. We recognize that something needs to change. Everyone in the world agrees with that. Where our culture leaves you is this. Well, all the best in trying to fix that. Right? But you see, this is why it's a 10-part series. (laughs) Because Jesus doesn't leave you there. God doesn't leave you there. See, yes, there is separation. Yes, there is this issue of sin. And by the way, people do find this uncomfortable because we don't like the idea of God bringing justice to sin in our lives. Which is really interesting because, and we were talking about this with young adults a couple of weeks ago, we have no problem with God being a God of love. The Bible is filled with God being a God of love. It's also filled with God being a holy God. And you see, the reason that we're dead is because God brings justice to the sin that we willingly commit. And we have issue with that because we don't like justice unless justice is applied to somebody else because they deserve it, but not me. Well, yeah, not me. So we don't like it. 
We like God being a God of love, but the reality is, is that love and holiness run on the same tracks. That God is so loving and so holy that he actually says, look, I can, it says in Ephesians 1, that he chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. So there's this love in him choosing us and going to the cross and dying for us while being motivated by his holiness. So you can't have one without the other. So God in his perfect holiness and his perfect uh, love says this. We can't just let, I can't just let sin go. Otherwise, I would not be a holy and just God, which would make me not perfect. But my perfect love will send my son to die in place of you. That's the gospel. See, the next image is Jesus. Jesus comes to the world. This is the good news. I have laid the bad news on thick because all I'm doing is bringing that which we know to the surface. But unlike the world, I'm saying, look, there's a, there's a hope, there's a joy, there's a love, there's a passion, there's a, there's a cross that Jesus Christ died on the cross, took your and my punishment that we truly deserve, and it dies with him. And through that, there's newness of life. Good news, friends. And if that does not make you skip and jump and holler and clap and want to tell people, it's because you've not saturated yourself in the gospel. Because if you saturated yourself in the truth of the gospel, Christian, then it wells up inside of you because the Spirit of God who lives in you starts invigorating and resonating. The Spirit is inside of you and it starts bubbling up and it just overwhelms. It comes out of you. You don't dwell on the sin. You don't dwell on the brokenness. You don't dwell on that which is gone. You are a new creation, new things, new Jesus into your life, and you celebrate. Let's be a church that celebrates the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's be a church where the love of Jesus overflows into our lives. That we're not kind of kicking the sand going, oh, sucks. Like, oh, I suppose you can come to church if you want. It's a bit boring. Do you know what makes church boring? You and me. We come into church with energy because of what Jesus has done. This church would be filled. Why? Because people would see here and in you something they can't find in the world. That's what church is. And it gets me a bit excited. Can you tell? Because Jesus died for me. And I'm a village idiot. And I know who I am was and I know the challenges I have and I know how hard it is and I know the sin that continually pulls at me and I feel the temptation and I'm aware of his perfect justice and it makes me run to the cross see we can't cover up our sin But Jonah 2 verse 9 says this, Salvation comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. Romans 9 verse 16, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. God is the initiator of faith. God is the initiator of the gospel. God is the one that chose to send his son to the cross. It's God. John 6 verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, the gospel is Jesus. 
But it's gospel that belongs to God. He loves you so much that he woos you, draws you, loves you, and says there is hope. There is hope. I want you to come back next week because next week we are just going to soak in the joy of the gospel. We're going to look at how God chose us. We're going to look at what that choosing means to us, that we're adopted. And as adopted children, it means that we are then can look at the being empowered, that our lives can be different. If you do not know Jesus, if you do not sense his presence in your life, then today was a good day to come because I've given you the truth. On a global scale, this is the issue we have. And then I've whispered quietly to you, not so quiet, there's hope, and his name is Jesus. What do you prefer, trying to figure it out yourself, trying to fix yourself? How's that working for you? You're trying to just spend more money on the problem? Trying to get more relationships on the problem? How's that working for you? You're chasing after something that ultimately makes a really rubbish savior. How's that working for you? Because I tell you, with Jesus in your life, through the cross, through believing in him, through repenting and saying, yeah, I'm sorry, Lord, for the sin that I willingly commit. As he floods, that sense of hope, that sense of joy. Is there still a struggle? Yes. But there's hope underlying the struggle all the time. If that's you, then I encourage you, even as we worship in a second, it's so simple, it's so beautiful, you ask for forgiveness. Because I believe that if you're even thinking and considering that, that's the Holy Spirit, because we're dead people. We don't come up with that ourselves. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. You submit to that. Christians, and I'm going to finish with this. My prayer that this year is that we grow and develop into being a church that highlights Jesus first and foremost. We want to make much of him in everything we do. Let's be unapologetic in our faith. Let's be unapologetic in what we believe in. Let's run to him rather than to the world for our answers. But together, as we work together and as we're teamed together and we pray together and we gather together, make that your priority in your life. Let it be that each week that you come and you celebrate, let's do this together. Because we have the greatest message the world has to hear. If we truly believe that, then I truly believe that this church will go from growth to growth, to growth. And God, the Bible says he will add to his church. He will grow his church as his people work together. Let's pray together. Let's worship together. Let's do community groups together. We've got four new community groups starting. Well, one not so new, but kind of changing, which is Joseph and Evelyn's community group, which we're really excited about releasing and praying them in. It's going to be great. And uh, then we have a new parent kind of community group. So if you have a parent of young kids and you find it hard to get to a community group, we have a community group just for you where it's, uh, I, I won't go through all the details, but you hopefully you had an email, but go and sign up at the connection desk as well. Then we have, um, help me out here. Say again. Dan and Dala starting a new community group. Thank you. Um, so that's great. There was another one that I can't remember. Anyway, we have lots of community groups. And Pete, 
is our coordinator over there, and he'd love to chat with you out there. Let's do community together. That's what church is about. I'm so excited about this year. Thank you for holding on with me through this sermon. (laughs) But it's good news. It's good news. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, we touched upon some pretty heavy stuff this morning. And God, I pray that, that what is left in our hearts and spirits is the sense of hope. And God, I'm okay with people feeling convicted and challenged. But Lord, I thank you that you whisper hope and love. And Lord, I thank you that there are good people here who can testify of complete life transformation, real life. And Lord, I pray as a church, God, I pray you would add to our number those who don't know you, those who come to know you. Lord, help us as the church to wear this good news clearly and visibly, being willing to share. Father, draw us to your house. Draw us to community groups. Lord, I pray there would be a church that is highly committed to the call that you have placed upon our lives. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you. God, I pray that through the darkness that surrounds us, that, Lord, that they would see just that hope, that light, and recognize that his name is Jesus. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you, Lord, for the good news. Thank you, Lord, you gave your life up so that we could experience life, real life. And so, Lord, I pray that as we finish now, and that, God, that we would we just make this last song a declaration and a prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for your church. We love you. Amen.